And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Role models. If you have a role model, you're going to be disappointed at some time. We are flawed human beings who live in a fallen world. That was something that was brought out in our 33 series, and it really stuck with me because it's so true. I remember I had a role model, and he was held up by many as a role model. He was engaged in sports, of course, and he was excellent in his sport. When he completed his sports career, he went into television, he was on every screen, All of the sponsors wanted him. He went into movies for a little bit. And then, on June 12th, 1994, people's bubbles were burst with O.J. Simpson. That one that everyone looked up to, that thought could do no wrong, and when we learned the darkness that went on behind the scenes that no one knew about, and the terrible events of that evening, that role model blew up. Isn't it interesting how we choose role models by them excelling in one area, only to find that, again, they're flawed people that live in a fallen world. Let me tell you this. There's one role model We need never worry about crashing and burning, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Scripture, He is upheld as the ultimate role model, the person that we are to follow, the person that we are to strive to become like. And here in Philippians chapter 2, the Word of God challenges us to think like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the point of our message this morning. Right thinking is Christ-like thinking. If you want to know whether or not you're thinking in the right way, you're processing something as it should be processed, go to the Word, consider Jesus, and do what Jesus would have done. That's to be our guide. That's how we're to live. That is how we are to pursue right thinking. Now, earlier in the second chapter, in verses 1 through 4, the Word of God was calling us to think about others, to place the interests of others above our own interests, to not be selfish, to not be self-seeking, but to seek the good of other people. And then when we come to this fifth verse, we see the ultimate example given to us of one who pursued that kind of life. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we want to see as we come to this text is, first of all, the right way to treat others is modeled by Christ. Now, this passage that we're going to be looking into was a hymn in the first century. 
It would have been included in their worship. They would have recited this hymn. And it contains some important information about who Jesus is. It's an important study of Christ. And I'm so thankful that it's in the Word of God. But sometimes we get so caught up in the theology of this passage, we forget the point that's being directed by the Apostle Paul. And that is that Jesus set aside his privilege to come and serve many. We don't want to lose that as we look at this passage. So, as we look into this text, we're going to start with the fifth verse. And here in the English Standard Version, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, you're going to notice that the ESV renders this differently than most of your other translations. Most of the other translations take the approach that have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here the ESV says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's what the translators are driving at. If I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I am embracing the thoughts and the motives and the ideas of Jesus Christ. So as a follower of him, it is mine already by identification with Christ. That's the thought process. It really comes to the same conclusion as many of the other translations. For instance, the New English translation says this, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So that's the thrust of it. That's the idea of what this passage is calling us to. So let's talk about what that attitude would be. Look at the sixth verse. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says this of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Now here it's important that we see the truths theologically of who Jesus is. It's important to see, first of all, that he was preexistent, and that's just a theological word for meaning that he existed prior to coming to earth, coming to the manger, being born, living among us, dying, resurrected, and ascending to heaven. Jesus existed in eternity past because he was God. Now, when we see in this text that it says, in the form of God, some misconstrue what the word form means. They think that it's some kind of God, and that's not what form communicates. The word form is actually communicating that everything that makes God God is true of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. That's who He is. So as we think about this passage, what Paul is communicating to us is that Jesus is God. He lived forever in the past, and He lives forever into the future. This is who He is. And other passages of Scripture bear this out. In John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus existed in eternity past as God. In John 1.14, it says, the Word became flesh, referring to the Word of verses 1 through 3. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, this is who Jesus is. He is God. He existed prior 
to everything. He is God. But notice what the sixth verse goes on to say. When it communicates, he did not consider or count equality with God something to be grasped. Now, I think you have to think very carefully about what Paul is communicating by quoting this hymn of the early church. Jesus grasping equality with God, first of all, gives us a very clear statement that Jesus is equal to God, God the Father, right? This is a clear statement of deity. You can't say that about any part of creation, that they are equal to God, right? The moment someone or something becomes equal to God, they are God. So his statement that Jesus did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, communicates an important truth about his deity. But it also communicates something very important in the flow of the context of this passage. And what it's communicating to us is this. Jesus had every right to remain as God with none of the limitations, being equal to the Father in every way, but he didn't hold on to it. He temporarily set it aside when he came to earth and became a human being, when he added to his deity humanity. And in the thought process of what's being shared in this text, I think this is significant, and here's why. Many of us will have rights and privileges, and we look at those and we say, I have the right to do this. And nobody's going to take it away from me. Well, guess what? Sometimes, even though we have a right to do something, it doesn't mean it's right to do it. Sometimes we set it aside for the purpose of others. Sometimes we think about their interests above our interests. And really, that's what's being communicated in the flow of this text. Jesus had the privilege of deity, and what did he do? As we'll see in the context of this passage, he set it aside. He didn't cease to become God, but he ceased to exercise the independent use of his attributes as God. And he did that to meet our needs placing the interests of others above his own interest. So when God asks us to do that same thing and to pattern what we do after Jesus Christ, he knows exactly what he's asking for. Jesus modeled it for us, refusing to hold on to his position. He temporarily set it aside. Look at what else we find as we look into this text. We relinquish our position and humble ourselves. This is a lesson learned from what Jesus did. Look at the second verse, or excuse me, the seventh verse. There's a little, no little uh, end on the end of that seven like I just said. (laughs) So the seventh verse, let's look at what it says. He emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Now, this communicates something deeply profound. Jesus is existing throughout eternity past in the form of God, equal to God. But in order to add to His deity humanity, He had to temporarily set aside the independent use of all that made Him God in order to become the God-man, both God and man. The Scripture says He emptied Himself. And to me, when, when I look at this, this is beyond the scope of my comprehension. Here you have a limitless being, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. So what does He do? He adds to that humanity, but in order to experience humanity, what did He have to do? Set aside the usage of all of those attributes of being all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Think about this. The infinite God became a fertilized egg. Can you imagine what Jesus Christ gave up to become one of us, adding humanity to His deity? He experienced fatigue. He experienced all of the things that we have to experience as human beings, setting aside the independent usage of all that makes Him God as far as His attributes. Amazing. Still remaining God, but setting those things aside for a time so that He could live as a man. Now, what's being illustrated by this deep theological truth is humility. Have you ever said this? Somebody wants you to do something that you feel is demeaning. And you say, that's beneath me. I'm not doing that. Think about what Jesus did. We are definitely beneath God. And yet, He became one of us. Setting all of that aside to come and minister to us to provide for us our salvation, which we could never provide for ourselves. That's powerful. Jesus emptied Himself, we're told in that seventh verse, and He took on the form of a servant. Jesus' words were these, For even as the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, of course, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is the servanthood of Jesus Christ. So the point that we find in Scripture is this. If Almighty God can do that to minister to us, is He really asking too much for us to minister to others by becoming a servant? He set the bar for us. He gave us the example. Our responsibility is to follow in that example, to humble ourselves the way Christ humbled Himself. 
That's the point of this passage. Being found in the likeness of men. Jesus lived as a man while he was here on planet earth. But then we come to the eighth verse. And what we're going to find in the eighth verse is something I think that's, that's vitally important. I somehow left off the eighth verse in my slides, but you have your outlines there. And on your outlines it says this, he remained obedient to the Father no matter what the cost. Now let's look at this together as we look into this text. When we come to verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about this with me for a moment. Here is Jesus Christ. Setting aside equality with God. Emptying himself. But as if that's not enough, what did he do? He went to the cross. The most demeaning execution that a person could experience, hanging naked on a tree. That's what Jesus experienced for all of us. He humbled himself. He became obedient, even to the point of going to the cross. That's the description the Word of God gives us in this text. Now, let me encourage you this morning. Jesus set the example of obedience. And what we find in this text is this. Obedience isn't just doing what God says when it works out for me. I feel good about this. I can go with that. Yeah, I'll obey in that. You know what obedience is? <laughs> it's sacrifice. It's setting aside what I really want and looking at what God wants and saying, I will humble myself by not insisting on having my way and doing what God says. That's what obedience is. We know that Jesus, as he approached the cross, said, Father, if there is a way for this cup to pass from me, then let it pass. But what did he do? He went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, the Scripture tells us that he even became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what Jesus did for us out of obedience to the Father and out of love and grace directed toward us. Now, I think we can see the point that's being illustrated by the mind of Christ in this. The mind of Christ tells us that I need to be obedient to the Father. That when it comes to what I want or what God wants, what I want takes second place. I will follow his purpose, his plan, even though it's not what I want, even though I want this other thing so badly I can taste it. I set it aside out of faithfulness to God. When we look at Jesus' obedience, it was obedience that was based not on convenience, but on commitment. And we need to pursue that same kind of mind when it comes to following Christ. 
In the context of this passage, that would involve putting the interests of others above my own. That would involve me humbling myself before others. That would involve me doing what God says rather than elevating me above God. Think about it. When I disobey God, what I'm saying is, I will do what I want to do, not what you want to do, God. No matter how I frame it, that's the truth of it. So we are not humbling ourselves before God. We're elevating ourselves above Him and His Word and what He says. God is calling us to think differently and to live differently. But then we go on in this text. And as we come to verse 9, we find the result of obedient servanthood pleases God. Look at verse 9, therefore. Now that word therefore points us back to all that's being discussed about Jesus Christ, the fact that He existed as God, the fact that He set it aside to add humanity to His deity, the fact that He became obedient even to the point of death on the cross for us. All of that is true, but then look at what happens. Therefore, because Jesus did all of these things, God did something. And look at what He did. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. God took the obedience and the humility of Christ, the sacrifice that He gave for us when He died on the cross for our sins, but He has exalted Jesus Christ. And there's a principle in there for us. When I put the interests of others above my own interests, when I live in obedience to God and sacrifice at this time in my life, what happens? And the answer is the same for us as it was for Christ. God lifts us up. Two passages of Scripture discuss this. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Jesus is the ultimate example of that, but we get to experience that as well. As I suffer, as I strive to be obedient now, sometimes it's hard to see where's the payoff, how does this work out. But ultimately what the Word of God is saying is, the ultimate payoff is pleasing God. And in God's due time, He will exalt you. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Not only do we look forward to that future, but in the moment, God is there for us to cast our anxieties on as we strive to humble ourselves. So here is Jesus. He humbles Himself before God, But God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name. That's Jesus. He is the one who bought our salvation, but he is the one who gives us an inheritance because of who he is and what he did for us. We share in the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Paul said this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now look at verse 6. And raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus' exaltation, he shares with his followers. Positionally, because I am in Christ, I am seated with him at the right hand of God, is what the scripture says. We have that huge blessing because Jesus humbled himself, became obedient unto death, and now the Father has exalted him, and we by virtue of a relationship with Him, are exalted with Him. That's such a blessing, such a truth for us to grasp. Jesus' exaltation, this lifting Him up, was something that He even prayed in John 17 as He was coming to the place to where He was facing the cross. This is His prayer. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with that glory I had with You before the world existed. Jesus would return to that glory that he temporarily set aside to live as a human being. This is the result of obedience, of putting the interests of others above his own. Something else that we see about Jesus, he will be revered by all. Look carefully at the 10th verse. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know what this is saying? There will come a time where everyone will recognize Jesus for who He is. Every atheist who says this is untrue will bow eventually before Jesus. Every person who has rejected Jesus to follow other gods will at some point bow before him in submission because he is God, and they will recognize that. Every person who says, I want to do my own thing, I don't want anything to do with God, will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a promise of Scripture, a truth of Scripture that really needs to sink in. But here's the important part. Let it sink in in this way. What is crucial is coming to the place to where you recognize Jesus for who He is before you die. It's better to find Jesus as Savior than to face Him as judge. And for those knees that bow that never come to the place of embracing Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they will face Him as judge and they will kneel before Him. But it will be too late. They have no relationship with the God of the universe because they did not come through the only name that God exalts, the Lord Jesus Christ. One closing thought. Look at verse 11. Everyone will recognize Jesus as Lord to God's glory. 
The 11th verse says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Very similar to the concept of verse 10, where verse 10 is our posture, verse 11 is our profession, what we say. And when the Scripture says we will confess, it's more than lip service. It's coming to the place to where we speak it out of conviction. We say that it's true. And just as in verse 10, there will be some who will confess Jesus as Lord to their salvation, there are going to be others who will still confess that He is Lord, but at no point in their life did they come to terms with that before they died. So He will be the Lord Judge rather than the Lord Savior in their experience. As I look at this passage of Scripture, I see the importance of communicating who Jesus is with others. And sometimes doesn't that require putting the interests of others above our own? I don't want to share the gospel with this person. They might think I'm an idiot. Whose interests are you looking out for? Right? I don't want to take a stand for what's right because that might not reflect well on me. Whose interests am I looking out for? When I really understand who Jesus is and when I really understand that there are some people that I rub shoulders with every day who will call Him Lord, who will kneel before Him, but will be His judge. That's sobering. And I need to think about them, pray for them, and step outside my comfort zone to reach them. It's important that we talk to people about them confessing Christ as Lord. Paul said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. That's our message. Speak the name of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done for you now that you might experience an eternity with Him. This passage of Scripture calls us to follow our example. And I want you not to look side to side, look inwardly, and ask yourself this question. Is my life, do my choices reflect obedience to God or a self-seeking, proud heart that wants to do what they want to do, even when I know it's wrong. I'm going to keep doing it because it feels good and it feels right. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God wants us to experience the fullness of a relationship with Him and the fullness of a Christian community that's coming together and experiencing what it is 
to love and live as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he doesn't share these passages to beat us up. He's the creator. He's the designer. He has baked into us all of these wonderful things that can come out when we follow Jesus Christ. We think, if I serve my own interests, I can find them fulfilled. But I'll tell you, after ministry for so many years, every person who has pursued that path has damaged themselves and those around them eventually. God wants us to seek others and to seek Him and to put self in the background. This is what we're called to. This is how we should live. Let's follow the ultimate role model, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the call that it is to us to live obediently before You. Break us of our pride and our stubbornness and let us live godly lives, obedient lives, doing what is right before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.